0: This podcast is presented by The Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse about education. Visit theednarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast and the blog. And please remember to leave a review on iTunes so that we can grow this community of educators. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Ed Narrative Podcast. My name is Darren Ralston, and I am the producer of the podcast. This time we've got Zaretta Hammond in to talk with us, and uh, it, it's a really good conversation. Uh, one of the things I always have trouble with is uh, when, I'm, when I'm trying to do one of these intros, I think... All the stuff I gotta cover, and, and I have this long list sitting right in front of me right now. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I need to say this, I need to say that. But really, when it comes down to it, the reason people are listening is because they wanna hear the discussion, not necessarily mine my intro so it was great to be able to talk with Zaretta and uh, also I do want to give you a sort of heads up at the beginning of the podcast if you're thinking there's something wrong with your audio that's that's just the fact that I'm using a portable setup instead of the studio that I normally work in. I was able to get about an hour of time ahead of one of Zaretta's sessions while she was here in Charlottesville and um, we were able to sit down and talk in the uh, conference space so there is a little bit of adjustment at the beginning where we're moving the mics, but um, but that stops after maybe like 10, 15 seconds in. Anyway, I was excited about this when uh, when I knew this was going to happen. I'm excited about it now. Um, here we go. Just like the A-team, right? There you the go. The plan comes together. Um, I, I did want to start, I mean, you know, first of all, just kind of getting a little bit about you. Not that, you know, I want to spend a lot of time. Sure. Kind of going into the bio part, but um, what made you land in this particular place and embrace it.
1: So, so you want to just start with yeah, that? Yeah, go ahead and jump hey. in. I, don't, I mean,
0: we're just talking here. I, I mean, I'm, I don't feel like we need to be really formal Absolutely. about Absolutely.
1: Everybody does it a slightly different way, yeah. so great. And I'm sure you're a master editor. <laughs> um, I do okay. <laughs> so it's interesting because I got started in terms of education, really helping folks close the achievement gap. Mm-hmm. So I never came into this saying, oh, I'm going to go embrace culturally responsive teaching because I think that's cool. Okay. It was just the opposite. I was actually showing teachers how to get more impact mm-hmm. and increase in, uh, achievement with their marginalized students, diverse students, students that were underperforming, that they didn't think they could actually reach in terms of helping those students actually improve their outcomes. And it just happens that Gloria Mm Latsing-Billings, who has done this work since the 70s, had coined that term as culturally responsive. Okay. And Where is she 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 is at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and she's been around for quite a long time. So it's not a new thing, even though it's gotten kind of a resurgence in popularity. Mm-hmm. So my work has always revolved around that practice. It's never something that I've called it. Right. I, we're right. coming in to do culturally responsive yep. teaching. Right. Sit down, everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, what I say is we're going to actually improve your students' right. outcomes. So instruction is always at the center mm-hmm. because it's not a thing. It's right. not a package. Right. It's, it's really, I say, a mindset yeah. moves and capacity okay. and then the, I usually share 10 core practices with teachers in terms of you know mindsets orientations that you need to have mm-hmm. in order to weave that into your instruction.
0: Yeah that was one thing uh, in reading your book um, that I had noticed is and I appreciate is because a lot of books that come out and a lot of topics that uh, that people present in education tend to be really formulaic. Mm-hmm. right and i appreciate the mindset aspect where it's more of like you know sort of an ethos of how you address your classroom community is yeah. that correct i mean it, that's a part of it i'd it? say it's
1: not formulaic but there right. are no, there I, are I moves absolutely yeah. but there are moves so that you don't want the pendulum to swing too far to One way or the other. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the community and the ethos of the classroom per se. Mm -hmm. That's a start. But there are certain instructional moves to Mm -hmm. actually get students to process information in more robust ways. Because that's a lot of time what teachers find. I can't get the student to really think deeply. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're doing anything special because the student is black or poor or. you know, an English learner, Mm -hmm. you're doing it because you're actually trying to capitalize on the student's neural pathways, the way that they're processing information. Culture is a lens into that. So when the teacher incorporates some of those um, particular ways of processing information into instruction, it's good for every student. You're not doing it to a particular student like they're special and I have to do this because this is the only way that you can understand
0: so it's not like a pull out thing or anything not at all it's okay
1: and Gloria Ladson Billings says it's just good teaching and a lot of Mm -hmm. teachers who see it say well that's just good teaching right Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but somehow the inequity that's going on is our students aren't getting that Our diverse Mm -hmm. students, our neediest students aren't getting that. Mm -hmm. And consequently, they are in educational environments that are working against them. Mm -hmm. No one sees their brilliance. No one sees their capacity. And consequently, uh, they just kind of linger and don't finish um, school, some of them, Some that do finish school are reading well below grade level. Yeah. So teachers don't really know how to accelerate learning. Mm -hmm. So culturally responsive teaching is a vehicle. And the reality is it's good for all kids.
0: Right, yeah. And I I mean I I liked in the book that you you know, to kind of get into that all kids piece that you had mentioned that, you know, one of the things that can kind of be in the back of people's minds is that they don't even have a culture, right? Mm -hmm. Or, Or something like that, which isn't true. Sometimes it's just harder to kind of see it, right? Um and and I feel like listening to what you were just saying about it's good teaching. Um there's a lot of moving parts in good teaching. That's right. right. And um that piece about the implicit bias, how does that figure into, you know, like those good teaching practices? Is that sort of like some static that butts up against it sometimes or how would you sort of categorize
1: That's a really good word. Here's the way that I characterize it, why we want to pay attention to that. Uh-huh. Implicit bias or deficit thinking is the way I like to orient that.
0: So you would say those are synonyms? I
1: no, I would say they are two different things. Oh, okay. Implicit right. bias is usually what an individual has. And okay. deficit thinking is the shared thinking about a particular group's capacity, status oh, okay. that we adopt. Everybody thinks that. and Sort of
0: the stereotyping aspect? Or and it's even beyond stereotyping, beyond
1: right? And I talk about it in the book, right. in Chapter 4, what, what is deficit thinking? Mm-hmm. Because it is kind of like, you know, it's the water we swim in. Right. Um, I mean, there are all these little, whether you want to call those stereotypes, or they become a mindset or a deficit thinking, an orientation mm-hmm. that if indeed... Um, that student comes and I see, oh, that's the language they speak, or they may not speak standard English, usually we equate less intelligence. So right. the deficit thinking is, what do, how do I interpret that? Mm-hmm. And consequently, my instructional decisions will flow from whatever this deficit is. Right. If I don't think the kids are capable, I really won't do any higher order thinking Because I've already decided they're not capable of
0: it. Right, and so why go there and use our time up for... Absolutely, and
1: that's the problem with deficit thinking. So part of what you have to be able to do is help teachers shift that so they can open themselves to say, oh, wow, the student actually comes with some um, assets, some intelligence that I didn't see before. How do I see that? Mm-hmm. And so the difference between implicit bias is not just, well, I have a negative view of those people. It really is a shared belief about the capacities of students in the classroom. Okay. And so it's a little more subtle. Um, it's a little more kind of the group thinks this, Mm -hmm. right? A school can think this, or you might hear it coming from um, even a central office sometimes, right? Our low kids, right? right? Our poor kids. And consequently, that view is we dumb down the curriculum for Mm -hmm. them because our expectations are pretty low.
0: Yeah, so you're holding back some of it from that Mm -hmm. group, which, yeah. Um, The the thing that I, I... Enjoyed reading about in um, I think it might have been that same chapter that you were talking about just now, uh, chapter four uh, was when you had talked about a teacher you'd had who gave you the Dunbar poem mm-hmm. and um, how he had come to a point where he was you know able to manage that part of you know his educational practice right i I mean I don't know the whole story I only know what was written, but um, you know. I've found from when I was in the classroom that, you know, I was an English teacher. And so, you know, when you deal with texts like, you know, for example, To Kill a Mockingbird, and you get into those strong issues, right, and, you know, how you present the information and how can you do it safely without it, you know, all of those Mm -hmm. things that you can perceive as pitfalls, right, um, run right up against that, um, you know, that bias, right? So um, how... As far as mediating that piece, how does one kind of start on that process? Oh wow, do yeah. we have time <laughs> that's a for big that question. No, I it is. I actually, I
1: actually do a workshop teaching racially sensitive literature, and th- and this is what's really interesting. That's not necessarily culturally responsive practices, right? Okay, but because things touch on culture or race or racial politics we have or equity mm-hmm. we have a tendency to put them all to together just them. absolutely yeah. okay. and consequently it gets a little muddled for teachers mm-hmm. so teaching racially sensitive literature um you may not be teaching in a culturally responsive way but you still may teach that book because it's mm-hmm. on the required list right So you still have to set up not just safety in the classroom. I think sometimes that's a a misnomer. You have to get comfortable with your discomfort. And the teacher has to do a lot of work in uh, helping students not get triggered by certain words. Right. So really kind of before you're reading the literature, having discussion about how will we treat this word. Mm -hmm. So if it's the N word. Right. Are you going to say it or not say it? And if you are,
0: what are the terms under which you
1: can Absolutely. And it's not a license for now we're running down the hall saying the N-word because we're studying that, right? I could tell you horror stories. And therefore, I've gotten licensed. And you hear white kids just using it. And it's like, well, it's it's in our unit. Um, So being able to, as a teacher, know how will I handle that? So you Mm -hmm. actually have to do that work yourself in terms Mm -hmm. of, does this make me nervous? You right. can't create a safe space if you're not feeling safe. Right. And most of our white teachers have not had the uh, experience of having to think through how they'll talk about those. Mm-hmm. So it's not until they come up on To Kill a Mockingbird right. that now. now I'm confronted because now I have to do now something with it, it. it. Yeah. without uh, building that stamina to actually talk about that. So that becomes, I think, a really... Uh, important piece so you have to kind of prepare yourself Mm -hmm. then you have to have some time before students are ever going to get into the text like in two weeks we're going to be doing to kill a mockingbird all right so you've got two weeks to prepare
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so you're going to actually start to work up to that it could be looking at some historical context Um, when I teach a course that I teach we actually do a history of the n-word okay so students actually see where it comes from mm-hmm. you know a lot of exposures just kind of how are they using it right now mm-hmm. young people like well i hear it in songs i yeah. hear people seeing it why can't i say it right. so they just get into the sensitivity of that then you also have to be sensitive to your uh, students of color that are in the room yeah and really honor them and lift them up so that they are feeling safe so right. that it's not on the on the backs of their social emotional well-being that people are having these conversations so there's so many layers and i tell teachers to buddy up right buddy up this is not the first time someone's taught this
0: yeah especially new teachers i know the first year i was in the classroom and i was teaching it you know i got blindsided by a couple things i hadn't anticipated absolutely but then the next year it didn't didn't happen nearly as much absolutely by three, so. but
1: the reality is every English department is going to teach some type of literature yeah. there should be the playbook mm-hmm. there should be something that someone teaches yeah, hands true. to you and the fact that if someone's done a really wonderful job then have them kind of lead a plc mm-hmm. or a, a staff development around that or a department meeting around that and this is that idea of being in community to do this work i really right. believe that teachers this is not about something you have to do alone right. um, whether that is teaching racially sensitive literature or if it's building your capacity to be a culturally responsive educator and here's what i'll say about that the term culturally responsive right it's got three words in it yep there's a tendency to go first to culture and try to figure Mm -hmm. that out or we go to teaching show me the moves that I can use on Monday Mm -hmm. what I say is focus first on responsive on the responsive, because being able to humanize school and have a relationship with students being able to respond to them and build that trust is the first order before you even start to learn about culture in a way that you think you want to bring it in you first have to build that relationship And that gives you time to actually build your background knowledge, your mindset, your moves around bringing culture in the classroom. Because most teachers don't know what that means. Sounds good, but they don't know what it means. So I think first building that relationship across trust, getting students to actually understand that you're on their side particularly across difference
0: right I I know from my experience once you get to that point there's this strange sort of shift in alignment in the classroom where you know if something comes up they're like I can't believe they're doing that to you right to the teacher Mm -hmm. right like no don't worry we got your back and it's like it's a totally different experience than when you come in and you're just kind of you're like okay there they are and here I am absolutely and then eventually when you get to that point like you're talking about you've gotten that trust it's like, here we are.
1: And, and I think this is absolutely the idea of the warm demander stance. Right. So that there's so many pieces of this work to work on before we get into, how do I bring culture into my instruction? Because teachers get enamored with that. They think, oh, that's the thing. But the real thing is a different relationship with the students. And in my book, I talk about this as a learning partnership. Right. How do you get in partnership with students? Not just being friendly, but I got your back. Right. I see you're struggling with reading, or I see you struggling with math or mm-hmm. algebra. All right, I got you. We're going to pick a target. In the next three weeks, we're going to work to cover that, to actually get you where you understand that content or you can do mm-hmm. that move. Right. And it doesn't mean that you, the teacher, are doing most of the heavy lifting right it's it means that you are going to support the student in doing a new thing Mm -hmm. and that really is it when you can get the student to see oh if i change this part then i see a result and it means the student is paying attention a different way
0: right getting them to i like that sort of idea of that that where you can like pull something here and watch it move over there and then you move that other thing until you can kind of realize just how much you're able to manipulate some some concept.
1: Now what's really interesting about that is that doesn't sound sexy. (laughs) But that's at the core of culturally responsive teaching Okay. is that I'm getting you to respond and I'm going to use some other frames of reference some other cognitive hooks that will get you to see how if you pull on this that will shift Mm -hmm. but the thing i need you to pay attention to is the pulling and the shifting right yeah not on the thing that just was a a cognitive hook. Oh, right. you know, it's like using a metaphor, right. or contextualizing the content around something that the student's familiar with, so that it would give them some schema to say, "Oh, I get this," and then they can adjust their learning moves mm-hmm. within that. So, getting teachers to really understand, it's not me just kind of mentioning random factoids about Africa right. or Mexico. And way, Absolutely, one time, and, yeah. yeah. It, or yeah. in math, you know. Ancient Egypt, you know, they count it with an abacus. <laughs> I, what? But I see yeah, that, right, and right. people think, oh, then I'm being culturally responsive. It is so, it's more complex, not to the point where it's complicated, right. but the idea that you're layering on things, and the real goal is to get the student to regain some sense of natural confidence mm-hmm. that because we live in a society that has inequity by design e- is eroded. So this mm-hmm. is the countermeasure, right? It's almost the antidote to push right. back on, but the first part of that is the responsive. So
0: um, what you were saying earlier, you were talking about introducing culture into it, right? Um, because it, at the same time, it also sounded like taking that that trust and that responsive piece should sort of prefigure culture being there already. Am I, am I off base there?
1: I think it, it's not so much off base, but I think we... Um, we misunderstand how we're bringing it in the way that I talk about bringing in the culture part is classrooms already are oriented toward individualistic culture right and I remember the table you had absolutely and getting people to see two-thirds of the world are collectivists Mm -hmm. and what I think is challenging for a lot of teachers they don't know what that means because in America, we are very individualistic yeah. we don 't learn a lot about the rest of the world, and therefore don 't navigate between that and so right. don 't really understand what does that mean when you use that word so this is probably one of the most frequent questions I get. What okay. is this collectivism so right. really helping people understand the nuances now communities of color when I have teachers of color in my mm-hmm. trainings, um, a lot of them are nodding right they, they and get it. they get it. Yeah. I usually will have. Someone speak up. I have done work in Alaska, so they could be uh, First Nation folks mm-hmm. that are Native Alaskan. I have had Filipina. Uh, I have had all kinds of uh, – talk about, yep, that's my, that's that's my culture. Yeah. That's what we do. So in many ways, it's almost spontaneous that people actually start to talk about. Now, I find two things very curious. These are usually colleagues that are in their midst. Mm-hmm. So they're not actually – leveraging the fact that there are people who actually live a collectivist culture to better understand it. This is how individualistic we are Mm -hmm. and the way we do school seats and rows, you know, even if we've got them in four little Mm -hmm. clusters, still it's kind of keep your eye on your own paper. Right. Right. Who's going to get the gold star today. So it becomes very competitive Mm -hmm. versus very relational. And that doesn't mean that kids like to work in groups all the time. That's what I've heard. That's kind of the reductionist. Oh, collectivism means collaboration. Put them in groups. groups. And the fact is you can be an individual with a collectivist lens. It's how you are looking at the world and interpreting things that are going on. And collectivism is both helping you understand, oh, here are the values of collectivism. So when I look at that experience, I have to filter it through these values. So it's not just get kids to work in groups. That is not being culturally responsive. Right. But a lot of teachers, because they have no exposure, that's what it comes down right. to. Right,
0: and I mean, hopefully it's coming out of a good place where they're just trying to latch on and start pulling in. The In, challenge the with time time that is it goes
1: sure. awry. So, mm. good intentions yep. impact Trump's intentions. Mm-hmm. So, if what students are still feeling is othered, misunderstood, and don't have the platform. Then, You're just grabbing things. This is why culturally responsive teaching requires people to educate themselves in their professional learning environments to be yeah. able to actually start to understand whether they're reading my book, and it's not the only way that people should learn. They should learn by doing. Yeah. So when I work with schools, we do collaborative inquiry. Okay. We actually pick one thing we're trying to move. We mm-hmm. really need to get students to infer better. How can we use these other tools to actually get them to do this Mm -hmm. thing? So the goal of culturally responsive teaching is always a change in the student's achievement. Okay. Not through self-esteem building. Right, But literally through learning moves mm-hmm. that i'm using the these aspects and it's more complicated than i think most teachers think so they right. glom onto something they just grab something because of yeah. good intentions right. but if you just start doing that and the student then either feels like you're stereotyping yeah. or make you maybe you're making fun of or it's reductionist that a lot of students particularly the older they get won't say anything right. but it erodes trust yeah and that's why it's a little dangerous and then
0: it comes back it doesn't work so we well you've got
1: two things yeah. it doesn't work i tried that and it doesn't work yeah. so now teachers are jaded right you know toward using any of those methods and then you have an even bigger um gulf between your relationship with your students so mm-hmm. it actually erodes trust yeah it, it really can go yeah. sideways right. quickly yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. now i can see that Um, Well, and you mentioned that having that sort of PD, that sort of constant um, work on on this is important. And that's what uh, the other day when I was talking to you you mentioned that that's what you're working on for your next follow-up book on this. Do you want to talk about that yet? Yeah, I've got
1: two more books in this um, trilogy, I'll say. Trilogy. And one is on... social emotional learning and development mm-hmm. uh, through a culturally responsive lens. Okay. Because this is another big area out there right now. So being able to help students develop an academic mindset mm-hmm. uh, and how do you leverage that cultural orientation to do that. Yeah. And then coaching toward cultural responsiveness. How do we really help teachers shift their mindset how do we help them bring these cultural learning tools into the classroom Mm -hmm. how do you help that layering on because we do know teaching is a bit complicated and how do we build this on teachers practice so that they don't feel like oh I got to go stop what I'm doing and learn a whole nother methodology because this is sometimes the resistance and what I try to show them is that they don't need to do that that's why I don't advocate that people just go to professional development settings here's why you go to the pd even if it's a day-long pd Mm -hmm. and then you go back to your classroom and nothing happens you still have
0: all the stuff that was facing you from absolutely
1: and you don't know where to start right and if you start something and it goes wrong you just keep doing it wrong Mm -hmm. because what we know is you can have professional development that shares a practice with you even if you've had a demo in modeling. If you don't have backup coaching with that, Mm -hmm. if you don't have the opportunity to do it in inquiry, oh, I tried it that way, it didn't work. But when I made this adjustment, Mm -hmm. I could see how it started to take off, which gives you a community to do that work in and it allows you to actually see the various things that you need to adjust. And if you're
0: able to get a coach in the room with you while you're working, then you would also have the ability to have that conversation where you can really do that. And you should have a coach. Do that. Yeah. And, and the coach w- should be trained. Most right, coaches exactly. are. <laughs>
1: and the coach can't be in the same PD learning at the same time that the teacher is. Why is that? Because you have to be at least two steps ahead.
0: Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. All right.
1: But you don't go hire a personal trainer who just said, oh, I just decided to be one yesterday. Right. I, I really gotcha. don't know. I'm going to professional development school for being a personal trainer you're like dude i'm not giving you my money i want
0: you to yeah i want you to
1: i'm going for mastery absolutely so that coaching someone requires that you understand what the moves are right and understand how to help a teacher who is over here to the left and i need you to get over here to the right okay but if i don't know how to do that i can't be learning with you
0: Okay, I think I misunderstood when you said that I was like, why can 't you come along you know, but I, I see what you're saying, mm-hmm. yeah, that does make sense,
1: yeah, and it's just being able to have a trained cadre of coaches who have their own community where they are sharing experiences mm-hmm. and notes about the f- most effective ways to support teachers so that they are building their capacity, and once you have that cadre of coaches and Uh, leaders, it could be assistant principals, it could be um, teacher leaders who are on your instructional leadership team, they then become the partners to teachers that are just learning. Right. And then once those teachers become more experienced and proficient, they become teachers and leaders for the work with new teachers coming up. Right. And then what you have in your school building is capacity. But when you're just mm-hmm. doing it one workshop at a time, there literally is no capacity. Right. And it won't take hold.
0: Right. It's kind of shooting in the dark. Is, it is, is very it much. Um, so as far as your work with prepping for the book, I'm not sure where you are in your process, if it's almost done or if you're kind of in the middle of it. But um, as far as your work with coaches around that book, how would you characterize it? Is it, um, do you have like a small group that you've been working with or Are you kind of like pulling from wherever you have?
1: I have a small group that I'm working with and um, I continue everywhere I go. I try to find a coach or two that I can shadow, get mm-hmm. connected with, learn more about their practice mm-hmm. um, because every situation is different. Every context is different. So Right now there is a group in Tulsa, Oklahoma and oh, I see okay. them uh, every other month and we do uh Video chats, so I check in with Mm -hmm. them. There is a group in California, and Mm -hmm. I'm working with them around collaborative inquiry. Um, So I'm in those uh, schools a middle school and a high school. Uh, again, everywhere I go, i met a couple of people while i 'm here right, and yeah. i 'm like i think i 'm going to follow up with you yeah. because again, I interrogate them about their practice. What seems mm-hmm. hard about it where Where have you seen success, and really just helping them understand the moves now i 'm at the point where i 've pretty much um, gotten the scope of what those moves are, and okay. now it 's a matter of helping people kind of Test them out in the field. Mm-hmm. So I have an online cadre of coaches that are across the country—Seattle, Kalamazoo—but we go through an online course and a video chat, and they go back, do it, right. come back, build their capacity. And, report
0: and sort of absolutely, have a conversation
1: absolutely. It. I encourage videotaping, yeah. you know, just so that you are building your coach practice. I'm not trying to teach them how to be a coach, right? Right? There's some great folks out there doing that. You know, a good friend mm-hmm. of mine, Elaine Aguilera, is the art of coaching. People have taken up her work. Yeah, we and did
0: a podcast around some of her work. Too. Absolutely. Yeah, so. And
1: so building that foundation around something like that gives you solid coaching chops. Mm-hmm. What I try to bring in is if you're wanting to move teachers toward being more responsive. Right. How do? What are the specific aspects of being more culturally responsive -hmm. You're going to need to move them toward, and how do you leverage your coaching tools so that you have a few more specific tools in your toolkit? Just like every job doesn't um, simply require a hammer or a wrench, right? right? That sometimes you need pliers. I work
0: with. He says, uh, (laughs) if you only have a hammer, everything you see looks like a nail. A nail, absolutely. And so again,
1: what I'm trying to do is. There are always some specialized tools. You may not use mm-hmm. them all the time, but, you know, in mm-hmm. in a toolkit, you can open that uh, box up and see, oh, wow, what's this little doodad here, yeah, right? right? Oh, that, do- wow, they have a thing for that. Mm-hmm. That's what I envision the tools around coaching yeah. for cultural well, responsiveness. I know
0: that, um, Lars, I'm sure you've gotten to know Lars uh, while well, you've been here and maybe before um he's he's done a few things where he's introduced different types of observation tools to help mm-hmm. kind of you know um I don't want to say diagnose but I can't think of a better word sort of what's going on mm-hmm. within a classroom you know there's a teacher who's met with him and he'll say um well it sounds like there's there might be something else going on here do you mind if I come in and and then he'll go through and, and, and use some of those those tools for observation, so that the observation isn't just, you know, about the teacher or about a couple of those problem kids. It's it's more, uh, sort of, whole picture around one concept that Absolutely. you know that figures into. What and you've here's been the other about. thing
1: that you, when you're going into the classroom, you have to think about, and these are related, but don't you know we don't usually think about them. How are you using time? Yeah. What are the time routines the, you have? Oh, my it's God. Big. Time is huge. So that what we know is if you're actually going to build a practice in your classroom where you're teaching from this, this, you know, approach, you're teaching with this integrated into your practice, then you're thinking about all of those things because mm-hmm. you may have to give more time to make sure students are having an instructional conversation. Right. You may think about what's the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Right now, a lot of teachers don't have space to give feedback to their students. Yeah,
0: I know. It's one of the, We actually had another um, session where we were looking at some visible learning things around feedback. Mm-hmm. And really just kind of close up how does effective feedback function. And it's just, it is very hard.
1: It is time consuming. So. It requires structures. And it requires routines. So you don't always have to think mm-hmm. about it. It should be a routine, a process. But when you help students become the leaders of their own learning, then you involve them actively in that. So it's Mm -hmm. not the teacher's burden.
0: It becomes we
1: again. It becomes we, and that Mm -hmm. the students actually have skills. Mm -hmm. That part of the work the teacher has to do is develop students' capacity. We have to get them ready for rigor. Mm -hmm. That's why the framework that I created was not called culturally responsive (laughs) framework. It's called the goal is to get students ready for rigor, because inequity by design Mm -hmm. continues to underdevelop their capacity. Mm -hmm. So we're using this to actually get them ready to take that on for themselves rather than over-scaffold or spoon-feed them or to do the right. things that have led to the kind of dependent learning we have.
0: So uh, we are at 804, um, and I want to make sure that, you know, if there was anything that you wanted to cover that um, that we haven't touched on yet, that uh, you have a chance to do that. I mean, I know we've got the wide world <laughs> open to <laughs> us here. Absolutely. But, you know, um,
1: I think the main thing I want to um, – really highlight is this is really about helping students improve their information processing skills right and there are a lot of things out there that you can bring in once you understand kind of the criteria for what makes something culturally responsive then you might see that there are things you actually have in your classroom there are things you're actually doing Mm -hmm. that would fit into that it doesn't have to always mention race it always doesn't have to mention culture to be something that you can repurpose Mm -hmm. to be more responsive to students. I always ask teachers to think about what they can keep doing because it's getting positive impact Mm -hmm. in learning. Think about what they need to stop doing. We know this is actually having a detrimental effect before they start thinking about what to start doing. Too Mm -hmm. often we just start things. Right. And we discard things or we layer it on so we just have to be more reflective Mm -hmm. we have to learn what those elements are and I think that's where you all are positioned really nicely you start to do that you know that thinking Mm -hmm. at this deeper level the ground in many ways has been tilled Mm -hmm. Um, so being able to have teachers be more reflective in their practice and not just kind of make it about strategies right. or the what's flavor of the day. That's yeah. what it is. And yeah. so I had that experience yesterday a little bit. Oh, yeah? You know, just teachers, you know, what? how do I do that? What's the strategy oh, yeah. for that?
0: Tell me how to do it right now so I can do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Show me how that works. Mm-hmm. Do we have
1: video of that? Because if I showed you a video of what's happening in a second-grade classroom around a teacher building academic mindset, that would not be all of what culturally responsive teaching is. Well, and it
0: would differ by the classroom makeup and by the Absolutely. students as well from, from the way I understand it. That's um, right. And
1: this is back to the analogy of the blind, men the blind man filling and, the and elephant. Yeah. Yep. Um, and this is why it is so important to bring teachers together as part of kind of a professional learning process, not just PD sessions.
0: Right, right sessions one and done that's kind of how they tend to work out and no i i mean i think i like that you have incorporated that coaching piece because i think a lot of times that gets kind of left out of any sort of you know mindset or or approach towards education absolutely often because it does need to be continuous if you're going to make it
1: stick absolutely and it's not because teachers don't know what they're doing teachers are skilled and we have to honor them for their Mm -hmm. knowledge it's that we all get better when we're doing it together
0: yep yep great so how did we do you think uh
1: i think we did good this was a good conversation
0: yeah i've I've enjoyed it yeah i'm glad that uh, we were able to do
1: this me too me too so well thanks a lot you're welcome
0: Man, that flew by. That was a good conversation with uh, Zaretta. I was really glad that she was able to find the time. When authors come into town, usually uh, you know, they have such a packed schedule that it's hard to uh, really have them find any spare moments. Um, but she came in an hour ahead of her uh, day-long session I can only imagine how, how exhausted she must have been afterwards. But it was a good uh, good opportunity to get some more clarity around what uh, culturally responsive teaching is, as well as uh, her vision of how this can really provide some structure for teachers to embrace this, uh, this way of teaching. So make sure you visit theednarrative.com, and that's all I got. Catch you later. Bye.